Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically-oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas, Memorial Hermann Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas, and today I am joined by none other than <laughs> Dr. Jane McCauley, also a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas in Houston. And today we are going to cover blunt injuries of the solid organs, that is the liver, the spleen, and the kidneys. I'm also sad to say that this is our very last episode, and I want to definitely thank Behind the Knife for the opportunity uh, to put out this series. Uh, we definitely had a lot of fun doing it, and um, I really hope that everyone learned a thing or two. So um, if you have enjoyed what you've heard, uh, please, please, please be sure to tell your friends, uh, promote us on social media, and leave a review. Uh, you know, the good people at Behind the Knife put in awful lot of time and energy into this absolutely amazing resource so do take a few minutes just to spread the love and uh, please don't also hesitate to reach out to me directly i can be found on twitter with the handle at georgioff and would love to hear your comments and ideas uh, regarding this podcast and anything else we want to talk about so without further ado jane let's get after it let's do it thanks for having me back patrick so, um, before we get started, I want to make a reference to the Eastern Association for Surgery of Trauma and the Western Trauma Association guidelines that are, are going to be in the show notes. So, just refer to those. The majority of what we're going to discuss can be found in those guidelines. They're really helpful. And again, this is all about blunt injury. Um, so, let's just start with the case. Um, so, Patrick, a 45-year-old female who was involved in a high-speed MBC... She, her primary survey is unremarkable. Her blood pressure is 120 over 70 and her heart rate is 120. Uh, she gets a chest x-ray and it's clear and her fast is also negative. She has no peritonitis on her exam. What would you like to do with her? Great. So blunt, MVC, blunt MVC. hemodynamically stable, fast, negative, no peritonitis on exam. We're going to go to the scanner. Absolutely. So... Now, what would you do if I told you that her fast was positive? Okay, so good question. Still, blood pressure 120 over 70, heart rate of 120. Um, I would still be inclined to take this patient to the scanner, but I would ensure uh, absolutely that we have good IV access and the immediate availability of blood products. Absolutely, great. So, okay, so the CT shows a grade 2 liver injury without active extravasation. Uh, there's a couple rib fractures, but other than that, there's no other injuries. So Patrick, can you captivate our listeners with a summary uh, of the double AST liver injury scale? Captivating. So captivating. Yeah. Um, yes, I'll do that. But also you should note that the liver is the most frequently injured abdominal organ. Interesting. Okay. So this is, uh, you know, we kind of have to do this, but so this, this listen in real yeah, time. Bear so, with so us. So grade one, double AST liver injury score, grade one, subcapsular hematoma, less than 10% surface area or parenchymal laceration less than one centimeters deep. Grade two, subcapsular hematoma, 10 to 50% of the total surface area, intraparenchymal hematoma less than 10 centimeters in diameter, and a laceration one to three centimeters in depth and less than or equal to 10 centimeters long. 
So grade three is where it starts getting a little saucy here. <laughs> subcapsular hematoma greater than 50% surface area, which is, that's a big hematoma. Ruptured subcapsular or parenchymal hematoma or an intraparenchymal laceration greater than 10 centimeters or, uh, long or, and, or greater than three centimeters deep. And very importantly, any injury in the presence of a liver vascular injury or active bleeding contained within the liver parenchyma. So active bleeding, a, a mm-hmm. contrast extravasation on CTTN contained Right. Within the liver parenchyma. Grade four, parenchymal disruption involving 25 to 75% of a hepatic lobe. Okay, active bleeding extending beyond the liver parenchyma into the peritoneum. So different than grade three in that you're active bleeding, okay, both of which can be on grade three or grade four, but grade four extends beyond the liver parenchyma free flowing into the peritoneum itself. And then grade five is just essentially a smashed, really bad, 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 bad liver. So, um, no one's going to remember that, but we said no, it's great. It's there. You can rewind it or refer to the show notes. Yes. Um, okay. So again, so grade two liver injury without active extravasation. That's where we're at with our patient, okay. right? So assuming this patient's pressure doesn't drop, what would you like to do with her? Yeah. So I, w- I would observe her. So non-operative management is in fact the treatment of choice for hemodynamically stable uh, patients with hepatic injury, regardless of injury grade, okay? And, and when we say non-operative management, this consists of observation, okay, and supportive care with uh, the adjunctive use of uh, angiography and hepatic embolization as needed. Right. Uh, so I'll mention, so retrospective reviews of the National Trauma Data Bank and other observational studies um, have found that more than 80% of patients with blunt hepatic injury can be treated non-operatively. 80%. With 80%. Yep. Um, and and this, ha- this goes with success rates defi- defined as no need for operative intervention for that hepatic injury in greater than 90% of patients. All right, so 80% um, may be eligible for non-operative management. Of those, greater than 90% are successfully treated non-operatively, again, right. defined as not having to go to the OR. Correct. Essentially. Okay. So the important thing to remember about observation, this requires admittance to a monitored bed, right, with frequent abdominal exams and serial hemoglobin checks, typically something like every six to eight hours, but that may be institutional specific or, or just doctor specific too. But really, if you're going to observe someone, the most important part of observation is being able to define what failure is and being able to recognize when someone fails non-operative management. And so, so this can be defined by a number of things. Most importantly, hypotension, tachycardia, drop in hemoglobin, and or peritonitis. So any of those things pop up, that person has failed. Right. And again, failure rate is rare. Uh, it's less than 10% or less uh, than patients fail. But it's also, uh, not surprisingly, associated with a higher mortality rate. Right. Okay. So back to our patient, we admit her, she's observed and she does great, but let's change it up now. Okay. Let's say that she actually had a grade four injury with active extravasation noted on that CT you got. What are you going to do now, Patrick? Sure. So not surprisingly, extravasation is indicative of active bleeding and this warrants either surgery or hepatic artery embolization. And it's super critical to remember that in this circumstance, in many other circumstances, it's it's not wrong to go to the OR. In fact, sometimes it's it's right and the absolute right decision. But for this injury, we're going to talk about interventional radiology and, and what they can do to help us. But again, never wrong to go to the OR. Absolutely correct. 
So on that note, let's say we do have interventional interventional radiology readily available at our institution. Okay, so in this case, I would ask them to perform hepatic angiography and embolization as indicated in an attempt to identify and treat this this bleed in the liver. So hepatic artery embolization can be performed with a bunch of different stuff, including coils, microspheres, or absorbable gelatin, and and or a combination of those things. And it's used to interrupt blood flow, um, and it can be done in a main hepatic artery or smaller branches. And it's important to remember that the portal vein supplies approximately 80% of blood to the liver, while the remainder is supplied by the hepatic arteries. This means that the liver is not guaranteed okay, to become ischemic if a hepatic artery is embolized. Although it definitely can, and we're going to talk more about that in a bit. And overall, the efficacy of angioembolization for hepatic trauma is 93%. So typically, but not always, it works. It's a good option. One retrospective study found that patients with a blush are 20 times more likely to require embolization than those without. And sometimes angiography fails to show bleeding despite it being seen on CT. Under these circumstances, empiric embolization can be performed to reduce the risk of recurrent hemorrhage. Right, and hepatic artery embolization can also be used in patients who have failed observation or even adjunctively to manage patients with ongoing ongoing bleeding or re-bleeding from the liver after they've gone to the OR for surgical management. I think we're going to touch base on that again, too, in a little bit. Right, Um, but, you know, there are complications of embolization, though, um, including hepatic necrosis abscess formation and bile leaks. Um, but there's more to come on how to manage those complications that we're going to talk about. Um, so let's mix it up further. Let's say our MVC patient is hypotensive, transi- transiently responding to blood products, has a positive fast, has peritonitis on exam. You take her directly to the OR, you perform an exploratory laparotomy, you find multiple liters of blood in the abdomen, and the, le- and the liver is basically a hot mess. What are you going to do? <laughs> it's a what hot mess. That's a, also a scientific term. That is absolutely uh, it, Well, so you're right. So like you said, we're going to get to the OR quick. That's that's the key here. This patient is, this is a grade five liver injury. They're hypotensive, positive fast, all these bad things. And we want to make absolutely sure that this patient has good IV access, that we have blood available. And we want to communicate frequently and clearly with our anesthesia colleagues to make sure they're on board with what we're doing here. Um, they're an ex- extraordinarily important part of this team um and like you said we cut up the belly and i'm gonna do a laparotomy i'm gonna pack all four quadrants so pack away you do this and you see your shattered liver it's a grade five injury okay that's a bad one that's the hot mess that's the hot mess so let's step back for a minute and and let's talk about the management of the surgical management of liver injuries so operative management of liver injuries can be challenging to say the least right yeah. even for experienced surgeons and this is due to the fact that liver can be massive it's a highly vascular organ it can be difficult to access the venous drainage right retrohepatic mm-hmm. injuries hepatic vein injuries and the composition of the liver parenchyma itself sucks you can't really so do it. it's a crumbly kind of chunky mess and in general surgery for traumatic liver injury is often a damage control procedure so you're not always able to definitively fix everything and sometimes that's the best thing to do um, and I would say that, that managing liver injuries in the OR definitely starts with exposure. Uh, so a um, midline laparotomy with a generous extension above the xiphoid, maybe a couple centimeters, is a good way to get started. Mm-hmm. You might need to take down the falciform ligament. It should be uh, taken uh, down and back all the way to the hepatic vein. And you want to... Uh, 
place a self-retaining tractor, retractor, and certainly Bookwalter is always an option. Things like Omnis or other uh, multi-directional uh, retractors may be more useful in, mm-hmm. in this setting as well. And then once you have your your exposure, your attraction, the control of liver bleeding can be approached in a stepwise fashion. And initially, we want to use simple measures, and we can progress to more aggressive measures, you know, as needed. By far and away, the most important techniques are manual compression and perihepatic packing. These skills, I cannot emphasize, are absolutely critical. They can temporarily and and sometimes permanently stop bleeding. Um, This will give you time to catch up on that resuscitation, give the blood products you need, and will give you a moment to think. Figure out your approach, take a breath, get the right supplies, and all the people and help you need in the room. Right, and and I couldn't agree more. When it comes to manual compression, this is exactly like it sounds. You take the broken liver and you squeeze it back together. And again, most bleeding uh, in the liver is venous. So this will typically at the very least, slow the bleeding. And in regards to packing, which is the other key critical skill you mentioned, that the technique of perihepatic packing involves compressing the liver from multiple directions by placing laparotomy, laparotomy pads into um, the space between the diaphragm and the liver, between the anterior abdominal wall and the liver, and uh, between the hepatic flexure of the colon and the liver. And in general, once you get a good pack in place and you're happy with it, they should probably be left alone for a little bit, at least something like five or 10 minutes before you go removing them and checking on, on, on how things, you know, how your, your packing performed. And if the bleeding is hard to control or it's deep or posterior um, and packing actually stops that bleeding, uh, then a damage control procedure and temporary uh, abdominal closure ideally followed immediately by interrogation by IR may be your best bet. And so at the very least, you can give the patient an opportunity to get warm, uh, to resuscitate them in the ICU before you head back to the OR to unpack and take a look uh, and really get more aggressive with your surgical efforts to stop bleeding. And we should mention that if you are leaving packs behind, some surgeons do like to wrap them in Ioban or something that helps avoid sticking those lap pads to the bowel or the raw surface of the liver. It, it can really be a pain in the butt to remove dry uh, lap pads from the bowel. And watch the liver bleed all over again. Or from, yes. the, yeah, from the liver capsule and just have more bleeding. Um, yeah. So, um, so Patrick, when, when would you take a patient who is packed back to the OR? Yeah, so this is, this is somewhat patient-specific and a little bit controversial in regards to the literature and what different people do, but certainly within 24 to 48 hours, post-op, that patient should be back uh, in the OR getting those those lap pads removed and, and any definitive procedures performed. Okay. What other surgical techniques are there to control liver bleeding? Sure. So we just talked about compression and we mm-hmm. talked about packing and there's lots of other things. So you can get that electrocautery <laughs> up on full blast Turn and spray. Turn those knobs right. 100. Argon. There's other energy devices you can use. Topical hemostatic agents, clips, tissue staplers, balloon tamponade, parenchymal vessel suture ligation directly, or liver capsule and parenchymal suturing. You could do a mental packing. Uh, there's lots of different things. And, and you know, that's just the main few. There's, there's a whole bunch more. Um, and in even extreme circumstances, you can also consider anatomic and or non-anatomic liver resection, uh, if this makes sense based on your need to access a certain bleeding area or just to take out non-viable liver. Yeah, so lots of ways to skin that cat, and uh, that's it's too much to get through in, in this episode. But l- instead, let's hone in on 
catastrophic bleeding that doesn't slow with any of those techniques that you just mentioned. What now? So this is definitely a bad situation. And again, we want to get back to basics. So we want to communicate with our anesthesia colleagues. We want to definitely ensure we have good IV access. We want blood products in the room. One thing I didn't mention before is multiple working um, suctions. Mm -hmm. Okay, a whole bunch of suckers, pool suckers, yank hours, whatever you need. Make sure they work. Uh, and we want to optimize exposure as well. And so in a lot of circumstances, you will need to take down the triangular and coronary ligaments as well. And probably the most important thing is getting on the horn and calling up some of your more experienced colleagues. Get in the room to help you out here because this is a bad situation. And once these things are in order, I would try my best to slow the bleeding and to improve visualization. And one way that I could definitely do that is by doing the Pringle maneuver. So, Jane... How do you do the Pringle maneuver? How do you do the Pringle maneuver? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the chips. Mm. But um, but a Pringle maneuver is performed by clamping the porta hepatis. One way to do this is to open that avascular plane of the lesser omentum. You find the uh, foramen of Winslow and you place an atraumatic vascular clamp or a Rommel tourniquet across those portal structures. Um, this not only slows the bleeding, but it can also help differentiate between bleeding that's due to uh, hepatic inflow vessels like the portal vein and hepatic artery versus hepatic outflow vessels like the hepatic veins or IVC. Specifically, bleeding from inflow vessels like the portal vein and hepatic artery should slow with that Pringle maneuver. Um, so Patrick, let's say you perform a Pringle maneuver but the bleeding still persists. Right. So now I am worried uh, about bleeding from the hepatic veins and or the IVC. And the situation went from bad to being much worse now, um, especially when our perihepatic packing has been unsuccessful. So um, it is uh, super challenging to control bleeding from the hepatic outflow vessels. And um, in this circumstance, I would try to obtain total vascular exclusion of the liver. Yikes. Uh, so in addition to the Pringle maneuver, I would try to get control of the infrahepatic suprarenal IVC and the suprahepatic IVC. Total vascular exclusion can honestly be pretty hard to perform, especially when it comes to the suprahepatic IVC. Oftentimes, there is not much room between the diaphragm and the dome of the liver, and the hepatic veins are still branched, making it somewhat precarious to clamp across. And an iatrogenic injury here would be a disaster. Um, so if it isn't safely doable, which is a common scenario, you can open up the diaphragm or the right chest to gain access to the superdiaphragmatic IVC, which is easier to clamp across. Yeah, that's a great point. And we should also mention that patients can really crump when you clamp their IVC, especially, um, you know, about the diaphragm here. The patient, you know, in these circumstances are already trying to die in you oftentimes. And so when you severely decrease venous return to the heart, that just might be something they don't tolerate very well. All right. So let's say we do, in fact, manage to get total vascular control. We exclude the blood supply to and from the liver. So what do I see at this point? I assume that you see likely at this point a big tear in the retrohepatic vena cava. And because we're trauma surgeons and because this is the, is behind the knife. It is. You dominate the repair. Dominate. And you get things under control. Damn right I do. And what happens to my patient? And your patient lives. Yeah, damn right. But you aren't off the hook yet because on hospital day three, they develop a bile leak. Mm. Okay. And you notice this because you were smart. And you left a couple perihepatic drains in the OR, Patrick. Always good to do with the uh -huh. big liver injury. Yep. Good work. Good work. 
How do you manage that? Yeah, so uh, it's not uncommon for big-time liver injuries like this to have complications, including a bile leak. And so in regards to the treatment of a bile leak, I would administer antibiotics, I would drain the biloma, and I would call up our GI colleagues and ask that they perform um, uh, stenting. So I want them to put a, a stent in the common bile duct. And the reason we do this is to encourage bile to flow through the stent itself, uh, which would be the path of least resistance, as opposed to uh, flowing out of that injured duct. Great job. You do this. And guess what? Your bile leak resolves. Magic. Uh-huh. The patient is discharged, but shows up two weeks later. The gift that keeps on giving yes. with a right pleural effusion and a necrotic, possibly infected segment of liver. Right. So all this is not uncommon. Like exactly what you're saying is, right. is, this is almost a story. The, the, you know, the norm. And right. so... Um, in general, uh, chunks of necrotic liver are, are best managed with antibiotics. Um, they can also be drained percutaneously if they're amenable to drainage, whether it be the location or the, or the um, uh, actual content of that is, is an abscess and drainable yet. And sometimes, not often though, uh, sometimes uh, the patients can be taken back to the OR for uh, a delayed partial hepatectomy to get rid of that necrotic area. Um, so I yeah. think... That wraps it up. Yeah. Yes. From liver, we covered a bunch. Let's let's move on to a spleen case. Ooh, a spleen. All right. Also, just as a reminder, we are focusing on blunt injuries right. exclusively today. Right. Blunt trauma, not not penetrating. Okay, Jane, you have a 34 year old male uh, who fell from a height of two stories at his job site. His primary survey is unremarkable, and his secondary survey is notable for multiple left arm fractures. His heart rate is 110, and his blood pressure is 120 over 80. And a chest x-ray shows uh, multiple broken ribs on the left side, but no hemo or pneumothorax. Pelvic x-ray is normal. Fast exam is positive in the upper quadrants, and he is taken to the CT scanner. Jane, can you uh, go through the AAST grading system for splenic injuries? Sure. It's my turn. Okay. Grade one includes subcapsular hematoma less than 10% of the surface area or a parenchymal laceration less than one centimeter in depth, or a capsular tear. Grade two, subcapsular hematoma that is 10 to 50% of the surface area, or an intraparenchymal hematoma less than five centimeters, or a parenchymal laceration one to three centimeters in depth. Grade three, a subcapsular hematoma greater than 50% of the surface area or a ruptured subcapsular or intraparenchymal hematoma greater or equal to 5 centimeters or a parenchymal laceration greater than 3 centimeters in depth. Grade 4, any injury in the presence of a splenic vascular injury or active bleeding confined within the splenic capsule or a parenchymal laceration involving segmental or hilar vessels producing greater than 25% devascularization. Grade five is that shattered spleen, or any injury in the presence of splenic vascular injury with active bleeding extending beyond the spleen into the peritoneum. Right, so I think the big differentiation there is going from grade three to grade four, you have active bleeding. Right. right. Grade four, though, active bleeding is confined within the splenic capsule. Mm-hmm. Going from grade four to grade five is that shattered spleen, but you have bleeding that extends outside of the, the capsule of the spleen itself. So, all right, let's say the CT scan shows a splenic injury of any grade, for that matter, without contrast, extravasation, or significant hemoperitoneum. Again, this patient, Jane, is hemodynamically stable without peritonitis or other significant injuries. What do you want to do with them? This patient can be observed in a similar fashion to what we already discussed for liver injuries. 
um, basically in a monitored unit with frequent abdominal exams and serial hemoglobin checks. Again, the key feature of observation is being able to recognize failure, including hypotension, tachycardia, a drop in hemoglobin, and or peritonitis. Observation is not appropriate in patients with hemodynamic instability, uh, generalized peritonitis, or for patients with other intra-abdominal injuries, including that require surgical exploration. Right, right. And there are are relative contraindications too, um, relative contraindications to observation of patients with splenic injuries. And these include cirrhosis, uh, TBI, and grade four or five uh, splenic injuries. In regards to cirrhosis, it is posited that increased venous pressure may impede clot formation. In a review of the National Trauma Data Bank, patients with liver cirrhosis had higher rates of failure of non-operative management and mortality compared with non-cirrhotic patients. And in regards to TBI, it is thought that non-operative management with subsequent failure is too risky as it may result in hypotension and secondary brain injury as a result, although this is controversial and may not be completely supported by the data. Sure. And how about higher grade injuries? So there's a higher failure rate of non-operative management with increasing grade of splenic injury. Um, Though all grades of splenic trauma can bleed and they can often bleed at an unpredictable fashion. Uh, so the optimal management of hemodynamically stable patients with grade 4 and grade 5 injuries specifically remains controversial. In general, these patients should be intervened upon in some way, shape, or form. Um, and in reality, most of these patients with grade 4 and 5 uh, have blush on CT. They're unstable, so they're going to meet those criteria. Um, a grade 5 injury should um, the vast majority of the time go to the OR, while a grade 4 injury may be appropriate for interventional radiology, although this is institution surgeon and patient specific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. This depends on a number of things. Is IR readily available? Is there already a moderate or large volume hemoperitoneum? Is the patient anticoagulated? Right. All these things are important questions. And and one last thing related to the observation of the hemodynamically stable uh, patient, Jane, do you need to get routine follow-up CT imaging to evaluate for the development of a pseudoaneurysm? For example, 48 to 72 hours post-op, the patient's, uh, or excuse me, not post-op, because they didn't go, 48 to 72 hours post-injury, they're in the hospital, they're doing fine, are you going to get a routine CT scan? Yeah, this is also pretty much institution-dependent. The data supporting the need for follow-up imaging is mixed, especially for grade 1, 2, and 3 injuries. Uh, Some advocate for repeat imaging only in patients with higher-grade injuries and may feel that repeat imaging should be performed for those with documented pseudoaneurysm. Sure, sure. Okay, so let's change it up a bit. Let's say that our hemodynamically stable patient has a grade 3 injury with active contrast extravasation, and they have a fair amount of blood in their belly. So what say you about this? All right, so um, in this situation, I would put in a stat consult for interventional radiology. Uh, embolization should be considered for splenic injuries that result in uh, or result in active contrast ex- extravasation, uh, splenic pseudoaneurysm, or large volume hemoperitoneum. And if IR isn't available, then this patient goes to the OR. Sure, easy. So, so when it comes to IR, the uh, embolization that IR performs can be a selective embolization or or non-selective. 
Um, so non-selective embolization occludes the main splenic artery, just distal to the dorsal pancreatic artery, and this decreases perfusion pressure um, to the spleen itself, um, while still allowing some perfusion to the spleen via collaterals like the short gastric or the pancreatic arteries. Selective embolization, on the other hand, is more distal, and this focuses on the actual area of injury itself. So um, interestingly enough, the spleen typically survives embolization, mm-hmm. which actually <laughs> didn't know that mm-hmm. some time ago. And, 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 and with that, though, you can often have areas that are, are inf- infarcted that sure. do die off, but not the entire spleen. Sure. Yeah. And, and the overall success rate of splenic embolization is 90%. Right. So, all right, Jane, let's change it up here. Let's say this patient is hemodynamically unstable. Okay. And you take them to the OR immediately to perform esplectomy. So do you have any tips for us? Of course. Uh, Splenectomy is one of my favorite cases. I know this. I know this to be true. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I would focus on three key, three key points. Um, the first, you want to do a really good job of bringing up that spleen into the op- operative field. You want to basically make it a midline organ. Um, you do this by carefully packing behind it. You want to bring it up. So one hand should be cupping that spleen gently with the other hand gently sliding those packs over your hand uh, posterior to the spleen. Second, you want to do your best to avoid injury to the tail of the pancreas, and and it can be really closely associated with that splenic hilum. And third, uh, you wanna make sure that you recognize uh, any bleeding and control any bleeding from those short gastric vessels. And this can be hard to identify during a really bloody case, but you, we can really come back to haunt you if you aren't careful. So at the end, you really need to make sure that you have a dry field and that you are not dealing with any of those short gases. Right. I mean, it's particularly important point here. And, and to avoid any shenanigans from, from bleeding shorties, I, I personally take a pair of Babcock clamps and march up along the greater curve of the stomach hand over hand. Tying off any short gastric vessels I see um, that have been uh, ligated, whether they're bleeding or not. Um, so, Jane, let's say we now have the spleen out. Woo-hoo. So, what do we need to know about vaccinations? Well, the absence of a, of a spleen impairs opsonization of encapsulated organisms, including Streptococcus pneumoniae, Haemophilus influenza type B, and meningococcus. The risk of overwhelming post-splenectomy infection, aka OPSI, is low, really less than 5% lifetime risk without those vaccines, but has a 70% mortality rate. So um, to maximize immune response, it is recommended that vaccines should be given 14 days after the splenectomy. Um, And if that patient is unlikely to show up for a follow-up, which many trauma patients are, honestly, they should really be vaccinated right before discharge. Right, right. All right, so let's finish this off with renal trauma. So following blunt renal trauma, over 80% of patients uh, will present with hematuria. So it's Mm -hmm. one way to pick them up real quick. Hematuria. Yeah, and the management of renal trauma is similar in a lot of ways to splenic trauma. Uh, And so as always, if the patient is hemodynamically unstable, they go to the OR. If not, they'll typically get a scan. Let's quickly review the AAST grading scale for kidney injuries. So grade one is a contusion to the bean uh, with microscopic or gross hematuria and or a subcapsular non-expanding hematoma and no laceration. So grade two would be a non-expanding perirenal hematoma that's confined to the retroperitoneum uh, and or a laceration that's less than one centimeter deep. Grade three is a laceration that's greater than one centimeter deep without injury to the collecting system or, or leakage of urine. Uh, grade four would be laceration extending through the renal cortex and collecting system with urinary extravasation. 
and or any injuries to the main renal artery or vein. And grade five is a completely shattered kidney uh, and or avulsion of the renal hilum itself. And like splenic injuries, if the patient is hemodynamically stable and there is no extravasation of contrast, then that patient may be a candidate for observation. Meanwhile, patients with contrast extravasation should be considered for angiography and embolization. However, like splenic injuries, grade four and five injuries may not be appropriate for observation or embolization. Conservative management of renal injuries avoids unnecessary surgery, it decreases unnecessary nephrectomies, and it definitely preserves renal function. The vast majority of the time, if you're going to go to the OR for a renal injury, the, the kidney ends up coming out. Not always, mm-hmm. but it oftentimes ends up coming out. Um, and, and conservative management may also even be appropriate for patients with urinary extravasation. So a period of observation is advocated for stable patients if injury to the renal pelvis or proximal ureters is not suspected. And that's because parenchymal collecting system injuries often resolve spontaneously on their own. Mm-hmm. Now, if you do have injuries to the collecting system, urinary drainage and or diversion may in fact be necessary. And in general, in these circumstances, you want to get urology involved um, uh, so they can weigh in. Right. And for, for patients who are managed conservatively, the American Urological Association Eurotrauma Euro Guidelines recommend a repeat contra- contrast enhanced CT at 48 to 72 hours for patients with deep lacerations, i.e. those grade 4 or 5 injuries, or for clinical signs that suggest complications, including progressively worsening flank pain, fever, persistent blood loss, abdominal distension, ileus, or hemodynamic instability. All right. So... Let's finish off kidneys with, with talk about surgical management. So mm-hmm. the goals of surgical exploration are to control bleeding first, to repair the kidney whenever possible, and to establish perirenal drainage as, as needed. Okay. So to access the kidney, you're going to have to perform a medial visceral rotation of the bowel. This will expose the retroperitoneum and the kidney itself. Next, vascular control of the kidney can be obtained by isolating the hilar vessels of the kid- with the kidney in, si- in situ or by rotating the entire kidney medially. Sure, and injuries to the kidney parenchyma that do not involve the collecting system can often be repaired with simple pledgeted uh, sutures, often non-absorbable sutures. Um, while if you do have an injury to the collecting system, you want to bring that collecting system back together, reapproximate it, and use absorbable sutures. In, in doing so, this is to avoid the formation of stones as a as a nidus on that mm-hmm. on a suture. Um, you can also perform a partial nephrectomy. So if the if the uh, injury is suitable, um, you're going to want to preserve as much kidney as possible and and avoid a total nephrectomy. And if you have any significant injury, a perinephric drain should be placed uh, for um, the monitoring of any urine leak postoperatively. If damage to the kidney is extensive or bleeding is unable to be controlled, a nephrectomy should be performed. And this is important. In the absence of preoperative imaging, the contralateral kidney should be palpated be- before mm, performing a good idea. that nephrectomy. Um, as an absent contralateral kidney uh, may impact this decision. Um, and when performing a nephrectomy, the hilar vessels can be ligated with permanent suture, while the ureter should be ligated as distally as possible with absorbable, absorbable suture. Again, the, uh, the nidus for, of stone formation. Right, right. Good. All right, I think that wraps it up for the beans there. Uh, let's do one last topic. So VTE prophylaxis in, in, in solid organ injury. So um, this is the perennial question, right? That perennial question, to hold or not to hold VTE prophylaxis. 
In general, um, trauma patients are high risk for venous thromboembolism. We know this. A Cochrane review in 2013 found that chemoprophylaxis significantly reduced DVT in trauma patients compared with no prophylaxis at all. So 4% in those getting prophylaxis and 9% in those who did not. Right. And in this study, there was a reduced rate of, v, of uh, PE. Uh, but this actually wasn't statistically significant. Mm-hmm. Um, the study also showed that low molecular weight heparin reduced the risk of DVD compared to unfractionated heparin, and that it did so with similar rates of bleeding. Right. And the American College of Chest Physicians guidelines recommend low molecular weight heparin in the trauma population too. Sure, sure. And, and we also know that the risk of venous thromboembolism rises sharply if treatment or prophylaxis is delayed beyond 72 to 96 hours. Uh, but trauma patients tend to have lots of complex injuries, uh, and they are at high risk of, of bleeding or even re-bleeding. So, so, Jane, when is it safe to start VT chemoprophylaxis in patients with blunt solid organ injury, especially if we go the route of non-operative management? Right. Well, we, we don't know exactly. The data isn't terribly robust, and there aren't specific guidelines for this. But pending any contraindications, the answer probably is 48 48 hours after injury. Right, right right around 48 hours, maybe even less too. And a lot of this is patient and institution uh, specific. And like you mentioned, uh, Jane, contraindications to starting VT chemoprophylaxis in the trauma patient population abound. There's all types of things that might cause you to hold it. Mm -hmm. So here at Memorial Hermann, we start low molecular weight heparin at 24 hours following an injury uh, in patients with solid organ injury of any grade. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if a patient... um, undergoes embolization or operative repair of the solid organ injury, that injury is considered resolved, okay? And VT prophylaxis can begin immediately um, if the extravasation and pseudoaneurysms or whatever you're treating were successfully treated or controlled surgically. Right, and, and this is barring any, any concomitant head injury or right. anything Lots else. and lots and lots of contraindications. Right. Um, so we use low molecular weight heparin, 30 milligrams sub Q every 12 hours for patients weighing between 45 and 90 kilograms. If they weigh less, we do 20 Q12. And if they weigh more, we do 40 Q12. And then we follow an anti 10 a level with the goal that we want to see 0.2 to 0.4. Right. Frequently monitored. So, um, good. Yeah. I think that about wraps it up. So let's finish off with a uh, quick let's, review. Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. So number one, non-operative management is a treatment of choice for hemodynamically stable patients with hepatic injury, regardless of injury grade, and consists of observation and supportive care with the adjunctive use of arteriography and hepatic embolization. Number two, the most important part of observation is defining failure and being able to recognize it. Failure of non-operative management is defined by hypotension, tachycardia, drop in hemoglobin, and or peritonitis. Sure. Number three, overall, the efficacy of angioembolization for hepatic trauma is 93%. Number four, when it comes to the operative management of bad liver trauma, communication with our anesthesia colleagues, good IV access, readily available blood products, multiple functioning suctions, optimized exposure, and help from your most experienced colleagues is paramount. Number five, by far and away the most important techniques for the operative management of liver injury are manual compression and perihepatic packing. These skills are absolutely critical. They can temporarily and sometimes permanently stop that bleeding. Number six, 
In hemodynamically stable patients with splenic injury, embolization should be considered for injuries that result in active contrast extravasation, splenic pseudoaneurysm, or hemoperitoneum. And a big reminder, it is never wrong to go to the OR. We are surgeons. Correct. Number seven, during splenectomy, be sure not to miss bleeding from the short gastric vessels. These can be hard to identify during a bloody case, but can come back to haunt you if you aren't careful. And last, number eight, the goals of surgical exploration for kidney trauma are to control the bleeding first, to repair the kidney when possible, and to establish drainage. Well, Patrick, it's been, I get the bookend of this entire series. Yes, it um, was fun. And I'm excited to say Patrick and Jane are signing off from the Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas, and dominate the day. Until next time, dominate the day.